Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornellians. My name is Katherine Gorecki, class of 2020, and I am one of the co-authors of Wall of Wonder, Cornell Woman Leading the Way in Science, Technology, and Engineering. The book is now available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. To learn more about the book, check out the first episode of this series. Today, I'm here with Dr. Erica Fisher, Cornell Engineering class of 2007, and one of the accomplished women featured in Wall of Wonder. Erica is now a professor of civil and construction engineering at Oregon State University. She also serves on the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute's board and is a co-founder of the virtual earthquake reconnaissance team. Her work has led her all over the world with efforts focused on making communities more resilient to disasters. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. So I wanted to start off by talking about your Cornell experience. And I know you describe your path to becoming a civil engineer as a bit nonlinear. Um, so I would love for you to share your journey as a Cornell undergrad and what led you to pursue your first job in structural engineering? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I do have a bit of a, a non-traditional career path, um, but uh, I, I think, you know, very similar to probably most engineers, I was good at math and science in high school. Um, so someone told me to be an engineer. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's how it goes for a lot of us. Um, for me, it was my, my guidance counselor. No one in my family is in engineering. Um, so I, um, I was looking up different engineering programs at different universities I was looking into. And at Cornell, there was the biological environmental engineering program. I grew up in New York. So um, that program, you can be in the engineering school for the entire time, or you can be in the ag school for three years and then switch over to the engineering school for your fourth year and graduate with an engineering degree. Um, and the ag school being one of the state endowed uh, colleges at, at Cornell. So that's kind of the path I took. I, I liked science, I liked math, biological engineering sounded great as a 17 year old. Um, I had no idea what it was, but um, sounded good to me. Um, and and for the most part, it was it was great for my first two years. I took a, a lot of the fundamentals and engineering courses, but um, my third year, junior year, uh, I started taking classes that were very specific to biological engineering. And all of my friends that were in my classes with me kept talking about how finally there was classes that were interesting to them. And all I kept thinking is all of a sudden the classes are not interesting to me. So it was, I had this very stark reaction that was very different from all of my peers. And so I don't know what in me kind of indicated that I, you know, this is probably not working, but, but something uh, was like, you should not be here. Uh, that something is, something is wrong. So um, I basically like any type A person took every single aptitude test on Cornell's campus um, in like every single department. Um, and they all came back as you should be an engineer. It's like, well, yeah, I, I get that. But like, what kind? There's there's a million kinds of engineering. Um, so uh, there was an advisor in the College of Engineering that I went to go talk to. And 
she just had me talk about what my interests were, what were some interesting things I did in high school that I really enjoyed, what um, what do I find just like interesting if I go to a new place and I see new things. Um, and I just started talking a lot about buildings and how um, I really love architecture. And, um, and I was also talking about how um, my father owned Midas muffler shops around New York, the state of New York, and I would go and do my own oil changes at the shop, or I would stay and like fix cars with the mechanics, and I really enjoyed that. And so she was like, it seems like civil engineering or mechanical engineering might be best. So um, I tried civil engineering first, and uh, it, seemed to, it seemed to work out, uh, <laughs> depending on, on where I am right now. Um, and then it just, uh, I, I just think Cornell has a great career services program. Um, they, there were just so many companies um, at noon 2007 uh, that were coming to campus to recruit those students. And so I was just signing up for interviews, seeing what would happen. Um, and someone hired me. Um, you know, looking back, it's like I was only in this major for like a year and a half. I don't know why anyone would hire me, but, um, you know, I'm grateful that they did. And um, I started structural engineering. Great. I love that story about, you know, your advisor and your father kind of leading you to the civil engineering route. I think that's a common theme of our in our book of having role models kind of push you into a career path that you're passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, I think also just like asking for help um, when you feel like you're stuck, uh, you know, especially on a university campus, there's always a lot of people there to help you. Of course, lots of great resources. Um, so I know you talk in the book that you were very passionate about that first job, um, but then you decided to return to grad school. And I kind of wanted to hear your story of why you decided to return to school and if you have any advice for other alumni who may be thinking of returning to get another degree? Yeah, I, I always knew I was going back to grad school. Um, so even when I graduated undergrad, I knew that I would have to go to graduate school. Um, I watched a lot of my peers graduating from civil engineering and they went to graduate school. So uh, it, it, I always knew it was happening. Um, but again, I was only in that major for a few terms. Um, I I paid for my own college degree. So I, I took out student loans for college um, and I didn't really want to jump into graduate school, potentially resulting in more student loans if I didn't know this is what I wanted to do. So um, again, very thankful that someone hired this student who knew nothing um, and gave me a chance because um, I got to see exactly what structural engineering was um, and got to see what it was on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think also, I, it, it's, it's interesting. I see a lot of my students now kind of saying the same thing. Uh, a lot of civil engineering students want to graduate and then go get the master's in architecture. And so I was totally along those lines. It's like, I might get a master's in civil engineering or in architecture. I don't know which one. Um, and so working with architects, seeing what entry-level architects were working on um, was really helpful for me to see, like, no, this is what I like. I like this job as a structural engineer. So um, it was always kind of in the back of my mind and things were going well at my job. Everything kind of seemed to go swimmingly, um, but uh, 2008 happened and uh, the recession occurred um, and New York City was kind of a tough place to be at that time. And so people were getting laid off left and right. 
there were very few job opportunities. Um, and I just, I saw, you know, if I wanted to go to graduate school, this is probably a good time to go. Um, also, I was like seeing a lot of um, my friends who also went straight into industry start to apply to grad school, whether it was an MBA, whether it was to law school, whether it was for structural engineering. Um, so it, it, like I, I took the GREs and I started filling out applications for graduate school. Um, and so that that's kind of the path that I went. Um, I applied to five different programs and I was like, okay, I don't want to pay for grad school. So wherever I can get the money to go, uh, that's where I'm going. Um, and Purdue gave me a fellowship, so I ended up going to Purdue. Um, but I mean, I think uh, I, I see it like in a lot of my my students and some of like the the new grads kind of coming out of universities, just like stressing about when do I go to grad school? When do I not go to grad school? What do I go get a degree for? And um, we can't make choices based on opportunities we don't have. So if you haven't gotten into graduate school, you can't actually go to graduate school. Um, so you need to apply. Um, so it's I, I think you know we can we can stress about theoretical situations, but as engineers, we're logical, right? So trying to tap into that like logical side of our brain um, and really understand that you know there's no use stressing until we have the opportunities. Um, and, and so, I mean, I would say like now, especially like literally currently now, um, it's probably a great time to go to grad school, um, because we're about to hit, you know, another financial crisis. Um, and so, you know, applying, apply to as like as many schools, you know, as you, as, as it makes financial sense. I know like different applications make you know, cost different amounts. I applied to like five schools. I, I didn't want to fill out more applications than that. I probably should have applied to more. Um, but I I don't know. I just, I was like, I'm just applying to these. We'll see how it goes. Um, but, you know, try to see if you can get like a TA position or a research assistant position um, where you're not paying for graduate school because um, that can really be expensive. Um, and if you have the personal freedom um, to do so, I would say like pick a cool place. Um, like, you know, graduate school, a lot of times it's like what, two to five years. Um, you can kind of live anywhere for two to five years. And I'm, I'm kind of glad I got out of New York. Um, I saw a totally different side of the country that I would never have seen ever. Um, I don't think I would ever find myself in Indiana for five years. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I think I got to see a different perspective because I lived in a different location. Um, and I got to see a different perspective and that, that really permeates through the academic programs that you're in. Um, so it's it, it's kind of an interesting kind of social experiment uh, to go, go somewhere else, like kind of branch out, um, see how an, another university operates. Um, but apply to a bunch of a bunch of universities and see where you get in. Um, and then start thinking about, you know, oh, should I quit my job? Should I not quit my job? But sometimes it's a little bit easier to make that decision when you actually have opportunities in front of you. Um, and then lastly, I would say, um, I when I was switching majors between biological engineering and, and civil engineering, <clears throat> Cornell is really unique in that it has this alumni database that gives you contact information of alumni. 
And I've been now at three universities and no one else has this. Um, and take advantage of it. Look up alumni, see what they're doing for a living. If they're doing something that seems like you would like to be doing it, then call them or email them and say, how did you, do, how did you get there? Um, how, how did you do that? Um, people are so willing to talk to you. Um, I actually got like an internship out of it. I, I called just like a bunch of civil engineers and just said, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Tell me about your job. Um, and they were so excited to talk to a student, a Cornell alum. They um, invited me to shadow them for a day. They like brought me out to coffee and lunch. And um, people are so generous with their time and um, with resources. And so um, definitely talk to them if they're in a position that you would like to be in um, and, and like see how they got there, where they go to school, talk about how you're thinking about grad school. Like, you, you know, these are my career goals. What do you suggest? What schools are like, would kind of align well with this? Um, and people are really, really helpful in giving opinions. I love that you highlight how great Cornell's resources are and the network. That's something that with this book, I think our whole team has found like very inspiring. Um, and I also just love how prevalent your story is to this year with coronavirus. I know so many peers are, you know, they're debating that decision to go back to school. And I love how you turned that into a positive in 2008 of you getting to go on this new grad school adventure. So I think that's great. Yeah, you get to hide out for a few years um, and you know, <laughs> go back to a university and um, and then, you know, emerge when things are better. <laughs> I love that. Um, so in the book, you also discuss how civil engineering is this really humanitarian profession of helping uh, society. Um, so could you elaborate on that point and also how diversity is important in your teams when solving those humanitarian problems? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, civil engineering, um, you know, we like to say it's like the oldest engineering, um, but, you know, we, uh, we're designing our cities, we're designing the towns, we're designing the world around us. Um, and if you didn't have anyone using those things, um, then we would be out of a job. So um, it is very much dependent upon um, usability and um, being able to understand how our communities actually function and use all of these different infrastructure components um, so that we can design them to benefit more of the city. I think like we're seeing now in today's climate, social climate, you know, a lot of uh, the social injustices that have come up throughout all these different systems. Um, and, and civil engineering has definitely been, um, you know, not, it, it's not, it's not safe from, from, from that criticism. Um, you know, it's, we, we have to, we have to look and see our, what are, what we, is what we're designing is that benefiting everyone in the community, or is it only benefiting a select few because of restrictions due to cost or location, um, you know, for putting in major infrastructure, such as like a highway or even just a stadium, you know, are we pushing people out? Um, we see that over and over again, especially with like large civil infrastructure projects within cities. Um, we see like stadiums, New York City has, has definitely been 
um, guilty of this in, in Brooklyn with the new Nets stadium and then Portland um, has definitely has a long history of, of redlining and, and using civil infrastructure projects to push people out. And so, you know, today, today is kind of our time to correct this and to think about how can we design infrastructure, safe infrastructure that um, provides more access, that provides um, like that, that benefits more people in the community, particularly our disenfranchised communities. Um, and then on top of that, it's that everything we design has an assumed risk with it. Um, and as a, as a structural engineer, I understand what that assumed risk is, but it's it's all based on probabilities. And it's very difficult, you know, it's taken me, you know, all my education, right, to understand what that risk is. Um, you know, how do I communicate that risk effectively to the community that's going to then be assuming that risk? Um, and so that they understand as well. And if they don't want to take that on, they can voice that. Um, so I think a lot of it is just, you know, we we design our buildings and our infrastructure in this very confined space um, at our desks, in front of our computers, um, not really conversing with, with a lot of the communities. Um, and we see, uh, I, I know I've just seen over, over the last 10 years, definitely a lot more community engagement in, in these large civil infrastructure problems, but, but, we, but we do see it over and over again where we're, we're proposing infrastructure that actually harms a community. Um, and so we need to think about, you know, how do we use our knowledge and our, you know, awesome Cornell educations to communicate what those harms could be and to actually think about how it's affecting everyone in the community. And if we're really just only benefiting a select few or if we're really providing this great service to, to the community. Um, I mean, it is insanely difficult and, and probably the largest challenge of our profession today. Um, so, you know, it, it's so much easier for me to just talk about it um, than, you know, it, it's, it's hard to implement it because a lot of what we're talking about is expensive. Um, and so how do we, you know, kind of think about the like strategic investments in our cities and, and to do so to really benefit like most of the population. Um, but that's, you know, a lot of where diversity kind of comes in in our teams is that, um, you know, there's, there is so much research out there that shows that teams that are, that have diversity are actually more successful. Um, they are more innovative. They, and that companies that have board of directors that have a diverse group of board of directors demographically, um, the company is more financially successful. So um, like this, this really affects the economics, right? So like, which is, I think the biggest driver of probably most decisions. Um, and so, you know, recognizing that, that um, if, if everyone in your group looks exactly the same and comes from exactly the same background, then you're only getting one thought. You're only getting one perspective. Um, but if you bring in all these different people, they're going to pick holes in your solution, um, but you have to be comfortable with that. And I think Cornell kind of set us up to be comfortable with 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 failure. Um, but it's a you know we have to we have to understand that we are just one perspective, and as an individual, we can't ever approach something from all different perspectives. We need to engage those diverse communities 
um, in order to create something that is, that is truly innovative. That is such valuable advice. And even across professions that just engaging your communities and making sure that everyone's voice is heard when you make decisions is, that's amazing. Um, and I also, so I really admire your work with the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute and the reconnaissance team. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners kind of what these organizations do, how you became involved, um, and how it's really grown over the years. Sure. Uh, um, ERI is a multidisciplinary professional society um, that aims to promote seismic safety in communities around the world. And by multidisciplinary, I mean that there are city planners, you have um, social scientists, you have public policy advocates, um, structural engineers, geotechnical engineers, emergency managers, seismologists, um, et cetera, going on and on and on. Um, probably forgetting like 12 professions in there. Uh, but they, um, it's, it's really unique in that there, there really aren't multidisciplinary professional societies that bring people together to have these really integrated conversations and come up with really multi, great multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary approaches for, for safety in, in cities and communities. Um, and when I was an undergraduate, they did not have an ERI chapter at Cornell, but they do now, um, which actually won a national um, undergraduate competition. So Wow. Chapter's doing really well. Um, and, uh, but when I got to graduate school, they did have a chapter at Purdue. Um, so I went to the call out meeting and they, they needed a, a secretary um, and no one was running. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, so I just started to get involved through that and started to see all of the opportunities that were available through the organization. Um, so I ended up becoming um, president of the student chapter at Purdue and also joined a national chapter, national kind of committee of graduate students that plan this undergraduate, um, it's a seismic design competition. They build like balsa wood structures and put it on shake tables and they shake it. Um, and so through that, I met graduate students across the country um, in all different disciplines. Um, and it was just, the most, the, probably like one of the most impactful experiences of my career. Um, and I am still friends, like really good friends with a lot of these people today. Um, and we've, we've like grown up together through our graduate school educations. We're now all, you know, professors throughout the country. Um, I get to collaborate with some of them. And so it's, it's just really cool to see. And it's a really great experience to connect with people who are really like-minded to you um, around the country, but they're in different disciplines. They come from different countries. They um, are at different universities um, and they can all commiserate with what you're going through as a graduate student. Um, so it's also very helpful. Um, but since then, um, I've, you know, I've, I've started the younger, I started the younger members committee um, with actually someone I met through that uh, student leadership council. And um, we saw that a lot of our younger members were really interested in reconnaissance. And um, reconnaissance is basically going to the field right after a disaster and collecting data so you can explain what happened. So um, 
what happened kind of like geographically throughout the region, like which regions were most heavily damaged by the earthquake or which regions were not damaged by the earthquake. And then the next level is, is why. Um, so is it because certain buildings weren't designed to codes, like codes progress over time. So if you have a code that, um, that maybe didn't know there was a fault line somewhere, um, then you know the buildings that were designed to that code are going to be heavily damaged in an earthquake. Or if you have very soft soil in certain areas, then you're gonna see uh, damage in an earthquake. So, we want to understand why. So, so like the process of kind of going into the field um, is is reconnaissance, and um, it, it's hard to get on a reconnaissance team um, if you don't have experience. Um, usually, the teams are small; they're about like five people or less. Um, and so, if you can only choose five people throughout the entire United States, it's really hard to justify choosing some young engineer who has no idea what they're doing, right? So <laughs> you're like, okay, we only have five brains, like, and we're going to choose this one that like doesn't know anything. So, um, you know, like, we're not. We're, it's really hard to get on a team. So we started this this virtual reconnaissance team um, to provide experience to our young engineers, so that they one understood what. Uh, you know, what a city or a community might look like after a disaster, which is quite jarring um, and emotional to, to actually just see that. And two, they kind of, they understand what reconnaissance is. They understand data collection methods. They've worked with teams that are in the field, even though they're virtual, um, they've like done the, the done the research on it and they've helped, you know, various reconnaissance teams. So, um, we now have like over 200 um, members around the world that, that help us do that. Um, right now we're doing some really interesting work looking at um, kind of challenges when there's a disaster um, in the midst of COVID, um, which is the, the first hurricane of the of the season is now off the off like the Gulf Coast of Mexico. So that's about to make landfall. Um, and and so it's it's a really great way to like engage younger members of, of ERI, but also just like more experienced members um, who don't want to leave their house. They don't want to go into the field, um, but they would like to help out. Um, and I think you asked like how I got in this. <laughs> um, so um, when I was in New York, when I was working in New York, there was a training. So there's actually an assessment method. Um, so after any of these types of disasters, um, buildings are usually placarded. So there's like a big sticker that goes on the outside of a building. And it's uh, red if the building's unsafe and should not be, not sh you should not go inside. It's yellow if parts of the building you can go into. And it literally writes on the placard, like you can go into like the back kitchen area or something. Um, and then, or it's green if the building is, um, basically it's, if it's in its st same state that it was in before the earthquake. So it doesn't mean that that if there's an aftershock that the building won't come down. It just means the, the earthquake did not significantly damage the structure. Um, and so there's this whole training on how to do it. Um, and so I took the training and the Haitian earthquake in 2010 just happened. And uh, this, this Haitian engineer stands up and says, we desperately need engineers to go to Haiti and help with building inspections. And um, as like, you know, a 24 year old, I was like, yeah, I'll go to Haiti. Um, so <laughs> I signed up to go um, and they they didn't have a lot of engineers signing up to go. So I went down there for um, almost a month um, and I was going kind of like house to house to house with a group of engineers and we were helping 
communicate to the, the, the Haitian people, like, yes, it is safe to go back into your house or no, it's not safe. Or if you should do some repairs, this is what you should do. Um, and like helping develop some sort of training programs for the Haitian Masons. Um, and so that experience kind of, um, after that, I was like, yes, I want to be able to like incorporate this into my career. Um, cause it's like the biggest way I can give back to a community. I have this like fancy education that is incredibly privileged. Um, and how do I then, you know, help people with it? Um, besides, you know, I mean, if, if you're hiring a structural engineer for a building, you know, it's usually, I, at least when I was working in New York, you're working on some kind of fancy buildings um, <laughs> that, that, you know, very few people can afford to live in. Um, and so, you know, how can you like really help like real people, um, just everyday people in, in their lives and make an impact? And, and that was, I just saw it like firsthand, like this is how to do it. Um, and I would like to be able to do this um, in my career. I love that. And I also, oh no, no problem. Um, I also know that you've done some excursions in other parts of the world besides Haiti. Do you have like a favorite memory from one of your field work sessions or any of your other projects that you've done? Um, I really think it's about the human connections that you make um, when you're when you're there. Um, you know, it's, I guess, like, one of my memories from Haiti is, like, our, our truck broke down, um, and uh, we were actually paired up, we were, we, we ran into a bunch of American engineers um, in Haiti, and they were like, hey, can we come around with you for a day, and we were like, yeah, come, come along. Um, ironically, it ended up being um, the company I would go and work for after grad school, um, but it's our, our both of our well one of our trucks broke down um and so we were at this school and we ended up just like playing soccer with the kids um and i just think like these these human experiences just remind you like this is what i do like i design infrastructure for humans like if these people didn't exist then like why am i designing roads or bridges or buildings or anything and and that it's when when this catastrophic event happens it it happens to the people who who live there um and and so that just um you know it's it, yeah it like i feel like on every trip i've ended up like making a connection you know with the people in the neighborhood but also like you make connections with other engineers around you um and like when i was in mexico city we we tied in with with a society of engineers in mexico city um and uh we were linked up with a graduate student or i think she she was actually an undergraduate student um at the local university and uh i i was like i for some reason i was the person on the team that exchanged phone numbers with her like and we were whatsapping each other so i was like okay i want to go to this part of the neighborhood or i'm interested in this like and she would then pull from the expertise at the university or if we were like we want to go to this town we heard there's something really interesting there she could be like don't go there it's not safe or she could be like please like if you go watch out for xyz um and so we we were just obviously like like texting like every day and then at the end of the day i'd like we go back to the office and like debrief with her and um 
you know, she ended up going to graduate school and I like wrote her a letter of recommendation. And um, it's like, you know, connecting with, with people in other countries, you know, we're all humans. We're, we're at the basis, like we are all human beings. Um, and we can, we all like can make those connections, even though, um, you know, we might not speak the same first language um, or go to the same university. And bringing it back to maybe someone who inspires you yourself. Um, so we like to use this phrase, who is on your wall of wonder, um, inspired by our book title as a way of asking, who do you look up to, who's inspired you um, and helped you overcome any setbacks? Um, so I just want to ask who is on your wall of wonder? Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot since you sent the questions and I think kind of like my gut reaction was to start rattling off all these like well-known engineers um, that I've got to meet. Um, and I think, um, you know, I've, I, I don't have any other engineers in my family. Um, and when I was an undergrad in grad school, um, I would meet a lot, like, I just felt like everyone around me, all the civil engineers around me had a dad or an uncle or a grandfather or a brother or someone who was a civil engineer and could give them like such like exact advice. <laughs> and I was like, oh gosh, I wish I had that. Um, but um, I think like, as I was like thinking about this more, I was like, okay, like who has like influenced me the most, right? And I, I just feel like by the time we get to Cornell or even by the time we graduate Cornell, the people who have influenced us the most are not these like well-known engineers, right? It's just the normal people that are around us. <laughs> um, and because we haven't met them yet. Um, and so, you know, I definitely have a lot of people I can go to and a lot of just wonderful caring people I can go to, to get advice from. Um, but I just, I think, um, like I've been very fortunate to have women in my family who are just really strong. Um, like I literally wrote down my paper, like notes, like I've, I come from a long line of badass women. And um, I just think like it's, I, none of them are engineers, uh, absolutely none of them, <laughs> or not even in the sciences, but like, um, you know, my grandmother came to the United States from Hungary um, before World War II, I, I grew up Jewish. So um, she stayed here for a year. She hated the United States and wanted to go home. She didn't have enough money. And then World War II broke out. And she basically didn't see like most of her family ever again. Um, and But she started a life here and has all these grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And like, you know, like I'm being interviewed for this podcast, right? Like, like, I just think, you know, she has achieved things beyond her wild imagine, wildest imagination. And, you know, it's, um, my, my mother and my older sister are probably the hardest working people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, you know, like if they, if they want something, it will happen. Um, and there's like no doubt about it. I mean, they, I, there are no doubts. Like when, when my sister says like she wants to achieve something or she wants, her, she has a goal, like, like it is just so inspiring to watch her do it um, because she will do it. Like she has so much determination and it's so inspiring to see that. Um, and I, I think it is just about the people who are just normally around you, um, who influence you in ways that you maybe don't think. Um, 
And it's uh, like taking time to like reflect on that. Um, you know, it, it's humbling. <laughs> it really is. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that was a, <laughs> enough of an answer, but <laughs> no, I 100% agree, especially as kind of a new graduate reflecting back on, you know, who, who influenced you. It definitely is just those friends and family that are around you, right. you know, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And as you get older, like, like, I, I feel like, you know, from the time I've graduated to the time I am now, like there's a lot of people I can go to for advice, but I feel like I don't, you know, I don't particularly know them like, you know, intimately, right? Like, it's like you, you go to them for advice. It's like a boss or a manager or um, a professional colleague. And you're like, yeah, I know you could give me like some really good advice, but like, I don't know what your daughter's name is. Like, I don't know what your, you know, like you, you, when you think about it, cause I was like thinking about the people and I was like, well, I, I don't know that I know them very well. Um, and, and I am like enamored by them, but um, I feel like I'm, I'm also enamored by like the people who I truly know um, and know everything about. And still I am like so impressed with, and so inspired by what they're able to do. And on that same topic of advice, do you have any last kind of words of wisdom for our young Cornell alumni? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, when I switched majors, I I probably said this during the interview, um, but I, you know, my whole family was like freaking out, you know, they were like, she's having an existential crisis. Like I come from like a large Jewish family and anyone who comes from a large Jewish family probably understands just the amount of involvement that everyone is in your life. Um, And my father said to me, he's like, you know, people live to a hundred these days. It's like, you're, you're 20 years old. You have time to figure it out. Um, And and I was like, yeah, I do. You know, and it's, um, even now, like if you asked me like what I want to do with the rest of my life, I would, I'd be like, I have no idea. Like who knows what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, just, I think that, you know, it, it think it's really hard for us as engineers because we all are like, we're planners, right? We're like all these like neurotic type A people. Um, and, and that's really great when it comes to our work, but it's like not so great when it comes to our personal lives. Um, and, and so being able to just be like, okay, like things will happen. And, you know, it's, uh, I guess I always kind of felt like I graduated with a Cornell degree in engineering. Like how bad can like my life turn out? (laughs) It's like, like, I am so privileged. I'm just like, I'm like, I have so much behind me. Like, I, I, I don't think anything's going to like go awry severely. Um, and, um, I think it's just like, there's plenty of time to figure things out. And if you're having trouble, like ask for help. I think it's, it's really hard for us women in these STEM fields to ask for help. Um, it is not a sign of weakness at all. And, um, it's so much easier for me to say this than do this because I don't ask for help at all. Um, (laughs) but it's, uh, you know, there are so many people that are willing to just sit down and chat with you for 30 minutes, an hour, and um, give you some advice. Um, so, you know, realize you have such a long road ahead of you. And if things take a left turn, let them like take a left turn. Um, as long as you're still having fun with it, um, you know, 
don't know, we all like slogged through our Cornell engineering degrees. Um, you know, we have to have some like light at the end of the tunnel to enjoy what we're doing with our lives. <laughs> I love that message of kind of just embracing uncertainty and spontaneity and kind of trusting in, in your talents. Um, yeah, it's easier said than done. It's way easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, so I've had so much fun talking with you today and I'm sure all the listeners will love this podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and again, Dr. Erica Fisher is a professor of civil and construction engineering at Oregon State University. My name again is Katherine Gorecki and I'm one of the co-authors of Wall of Wonder. Remember to check out the first episode of this series to learn more about the book and be sure to check out our other two interviews of featured women from Wall of Wonder. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Fresh from the Hill. Music for Fresh from the Hill was written, produced, and recorded by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. For more information about the podcast, young alumni programs, and how you can stay involved with Cornell, visit our website, alumni.cornell.edu slash young alumni. 